Welcome to the conversation at airsafe.com. I'm your host, Todd Curtis. This is a special edition of the podcast featuring my visit to the Airplane Geeks, the long-running podcast run by Max Flight. This podcast, which debuted in 2008, as the name implies, is a very deep dive into many areas of aviation. They regularly discuss a wide range of topics in the commercial, military, and general aviation sectors, and they typically have at least one guest from industry. And I was at guest for episode number 392, which was published in early March 2016. We recorded the podcast on March 7, 2016, one day before the second anniversary of the disappearance of Malaysia Airlines flight MH370. In addition to MH370, we also discussed laser and drone threats to aircraft, an aviation maintenance competition that's coming up in April 2016, and issues around improving the quality of media reporting of aviation accidents. The Airplane Geeks podcast typically includes a news section, and during my visit, we discuss an upcoming plan by NASA to research supersonic flight, as well as an all-female flight conducted by an Indian airline in observance of International Women's Day, and the opening up of air service to Cuba. What follows is a portion of the podcast, and it's about an hour and 20 minutes long. Let's say hello to Todd. Hi, Todd. Good evening to you. How are you? Doing just fine. It's great to have you on the show. Well, it's great to be back on the show. I didn't realize until you invited me uh, a few days ago that I was on back in 2008 in show number 10. I know. I couldn't believe You know, <laughs> I I swore you were on the show. I, I, I knew you were on the show, and I'm looking for the episode, and I'm looking and looking, and I couldn't find it. And it was just making me crazy. And then finally I found episode 10. So for you other guys, it was uh, Courtney and I did – a sort of live, an attempted live show. I think we used Blog Talk Radio or something uh, horrid like that, and we we had a number of folks on, and uh, and Todd was one of the one of the guests for that episode. So it was just a you know a short little segment, but you know Todd, I had I really thought that we had had you on for a a real full episode someday. So uh, I'm, I'm I'm sorry that we haven't until now, but well, I'm, I'm glad, glad that day on. has arrived. Absolutely. So, uh, well, so what overwork you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, you can say hello to the guys we have uh, with us, uh, Rob Mark. That that's me out here in Chicago. Good there evening. Welcome. Pleasure to hear from you. And Brian Coleman's on also. Not hello. from Chicago. Hello, Brian. From yeah. Los Angeles. Brian's a West Coast guy. And uh, we also have David Vanderhoof. Hi, yes, not really from Philadelphia. From, oh my gosh, you're close to my neighborhood. I'm over here in Brookline, Mass, on the outskirts of Boston. Oh well, I'm closer. I'm I'm just south of Hartford, a place I've driven through many times. And I, I know speak. everybody. I know, I know. <laughs> on 84, I know. I I've lived here for a long time, but I it was probably 20 years worth of driving through Hartford that. Uh, um, you know, never paying any attention to it, never, never knowing that someday I would live there. It's kind of funny how that works. But. And Max, it looks like um, Max T just. Hello. Hey, hey, he's there. Where are you? Are you in Washington? I am. Good, good. Well, say hello to uh, Todd. Hey, Todd, Dr. Todd, how are you? Well, doing just fine. Excellent. All right. Uh, so why don't we, uh, why don't we get started? So uh, Todd, I'll, you know, I'll open up the show. We'll introduce um, all of the co-hosts and uh, introduce you. And um, then we've got a, uh, before we start with the news, we just got a little thing we want to do, um, um, a little call to action for, 
for our listeners. And then we'll jump into the news stories. And so I guess that's about it. Um, I know you're used to doing a lot of live, uh, you know, live things. And because we're recording and edits, uh, that means the do-overs are, are allowed. So uh, if, uh, you know, you find the need to go back and restate something a little differently or anything like that, that's that's fine. No problem. So since we're li- not live and not time limited, I don't have to congeal my thoughts into seven-second bursts with no more than two facts. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's not like, uh, yeah, being on the on the news. Uh, add add to the fact that these people actually know what the hell you're talking about. So it's don't true. forget that option, too. Hey, yeah, sometimes it can be kind of dicey on live TV. Yes, and, and Rob knows that, too, because uh, Rob has done uh, a bit of that as well, haven't you, Rob? Amen. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, if there are no uh, no questions or anything... Uh, David, why don't you take us through the the checklist? Uh, Brian, are you recording? I am. Robert, are you recording? Yes, sir. Trescott, I'm assuming you're not recording. Correct. All right, Max, is your primary on? Uh, yes. Your secondary? Yes. Your speaker's turned off? Check. All right, hand on the buzzer. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. This is episode 392 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and hosting with me is first Brian Coleman, our associate producer. Good evening, Max. It's great to be here again. All right. And also with us is Max Trescott. From, I think, tonight, a hotel room or something of that sort. Uh, hi, Max. That's true. I spent all day flying from uh, California to Washington, D.C., and boy, are my wings tired or arms tired or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Glad you could make it. Also with us is our aviation historian, David Vanderhoof. Hello, everyone. Looking forward to a good show talking about not so good things, but good, th- but good show nonetheless. And finally, co-hosting is Rob Mark, publisher of the Jetwine blog. Hey, Rob. Good evening, everybody from Chicago. Our guest this episode is Dr. Todd Curtis. Now, Todd's an aviation safety analyst. He's an author and a publisher. He founded airsafe.com in 1996 to provide the public with useful information on airline safety, fear of flying, plane crashes, TSA security, and other issues of concern to the traveling public. Now, while an airline safety engineer at Boeing, Todd was directly involved in many plane crash investigations, including TWA Flight 800, and he was also part of the engineering development team for the 777. In addition to writing several books on aviation safety and security, Todd's also written the book Parenting and the Internet. He's been a frequent on-air aviation expert on CNN, CBS, NBC, ABC, MSNBC, as well as Fox News, CBC, the BBC, Discovery Channel, Todd is everywhere, NPR, and many other major news media outlets around the world. Todd, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for making this event happen, which means now I can say I've been a multiple guest to this podcast. That's right. Uh, for those of you who are especially sharp or very long-term listeners, uh, Todd was on the show way back in episode 10. 
So it's been way too long, but we're we're really glad that Todd is back to join us. Uh, we'll talk about some of the things that he's been looking at at uh, airsafe.com. We're going to talk about MH370, which was lost March 8th, 2014. So we've got the second anniversary. All right. Uh, with that, let's get started with the aviation news. Is everyone ready? Ready. Yeah. Ready from Washington. Our first story comes from Flight Global. This is NASA selects Lockheed Martin to design supersonic X-plane. Now, under the preliminary design phase of this program, it's called the Quiet Supersonic Technology Program, or I guess Quest. Quest, would you say? Q-U-E-S-S-T. But under this program, Lockheed Martin will lead a team to design a half-scale supersonic X-plane uses boom suppression technology. Now, NASA Administrator Charlie Bolden, who was our guest back in episode 316, he said, quote, now we're continuing that supersonic X-plane legacy with this preliminary design award for a quieter supersonic jet with an aim towards passenger flight. Well, it's, uh, you know, we've always sort of dreamt about supersonic flight we experienced the concorde for a number of years but sort of in a limited volume i guess you could say again because of this supersonic uh, sonic boom problem uh rob do you think we'll be flying in supersonic jets sometime in the not too distant future so as david would say um uh I think the sonic boom issue is is really uh, a critical one. It sounds like they're they're much closer to it, but we still have that regulation on the books that says a civil aircraft will not exceed the speed of sound over uh, the uh, United States. And uh, of course, maybe if we get close enough to dumping the sonic boom, that regulation will somehow go away. But there's still those boxes to be checked. Mm. But I'm hopeful. Yeah, I just wonder if they could leverage any of the work that Boeing did with their uh, supersonic plane from a few years back. Ah, yes, that Boeing plane. Uh, Todd, are you uh, familiar with that? Do you think that's uh, some technology that may be useful? Well, believe it or not, for a brief time during my uh, time at Boeing, I was working on the project called the Sonic Cruiser, which was a high subsonic, not a supersonic aircraft. And it was a very short program, and there wasn't much in the way of engineering knowledge that I think was passed on. But certainly, the knowledge that was built during the 60s and the uh, the first era of the SST is something that could be dusted off. But what I'm uh, concerned about isn't the technology or even getting rid of the sonic boom. The most important thing to overcome is going to be cost. If yeah. they can get rid of the sonic boom and make it cost-effective, it'll happen. But if it's going to be a situation like the Concorde, where it's a premium above even first-class tickets, and if you had limited range, well, there's not going to be an economic uh, model that will support it. Yeah, that's an excellent point, I think. Uh, because, yeah, as, as you say, the Concorde uh, commanded such a, a premium price that you know only a few people could afford that. Um, 
we what we dream of is something, of course, where you know, everybody or, or most people anyway who are, are flying commercially can take advantage of uh, of uh, especially fast flights. But uh, I don't know if that will happen or not. But I sure would love to trade in some of my frequent flyer miles and fly on it, though. Yeah, I don't think uh, BA or Air France ever made any money on the Concorde. What with uh, the twelve airplanes they had, so I think uh, I think Todd's right there. I think economics is what it all comes down to, and it's it's hard to envision they'll be able to charge enough to uh, to make this pay off. I can put out a radical idea that probably the first airlines to actually put them into service profitably would be more like a FedEx or UPS, and that there may be high value packages that are more valuable than most passengers that the uh, customers would pay a pretty penny to get it there fast. Hmm. You know, when I was working uh, at a jet engine company, uh, I would say that the most frequent question I was asked by people who knew nothing about aviation uh, was, are you working to make jets faster? That, that seems to be what people kind of assumed the next frontier would be or that is where the development and the engineering uh, uh, was going. People always thought, well, gee, it must be making them faster. That's what everybody's working towards. And, of course, you'd explain that, well, we, we could make them faster, but it would cost a lot of money. But also, even more than that, it would consume a lot of fuel. So I don't know what kind of efficiencies from a fuel standpoint uh, this uh, supersonic X-plane will, will demonstrate. I'll be very curious to see that. Well, you, you do you do all know that this is an extension of a previous NASA project. Yes. Cor okay, the shaped sonic boom demonstrator, which was an F5E, had a modified nose, so that which is what Lockheed's using as the basis for their new X plane. So this is this is uh, 2008 technology that they're moving forward. They just didn't have any budget to create something new. The, the F5E was modified to have that shaped boom to keep the sound reduction slow, lower than it was on a standard F5. But if you look at the um, F5E SSB um, and compared to what the Lockheed proposal is or that artwork, you'll see very large similarities that on how they're trying to manipulate the the shape of the noise over the fuselage so you do not get that boom. Hmm. Interesting. You know, we were talking a few weeks ago about how NASA was getting back into the X-Plane business, how they were going to start to, I think, Max, you're the one who said, you know, re-embrace re the A, you know, the first A in, in NASA, not the, uh, not the second one. So um, why do we think that is? I mean, is it generally agencies are always looking to, uh, you know, cut projects when money is tight. I mean, do they think that uh, space is going to get commercialized to the extent where now they need to come up with a new mission for themselves? Or what, what's the driving factor? Why is NASA back in the X-Plane business? Because they should have never left in the first place. Hmm. I mean, it, th there is an A in NASA for a reason. Um, and a lot of the benefit, and I don't think there's a lot of companies out there privately that are doing these kind of experiments you know it's it, so i think nasa can find a way to work with the the bureau or with the public organizations to come to come up with better experiments but they should have never for a while there we were too obsessed with you know the the s 
in NASA, you know, and not enough A. So I, I think they're trying to find a balance. And and this is one of the biggest experiments is with supersonic biz jets, you know. So Rob Mark can go Mach one. <laughs> Another thing about yeah. NASA that I like to stress to people when I talk about uh, that particular organization. They have an advantage that few companies and few governments can match. That is, they have an installed infrastructure from test facilities to flight facilities, etc. That if you were a private entity, let's say an Elon Musk, you couldn't come close to the range of things that NASA has, not in any short time frame. So it makes sense that they're taking advantage of what they can do, which is dealing with uh, the astronautics and the av- and the aerospace. Right, and certainly not just facilities. I mean, they got a lot of a lot of PhDs on the payroll. A lot of really smart people who have the advantage of being in a position where, uh, and of course, there are some political entities who don't like this. But if you are in a government a, a job, the likelihood of being fired if you don't make money in the next quarter is virtually zero. Now, there are some drawbacks to that, but one thing you can say: if you are in a position like that as a civil servant. You don't have the pressure quarter after quarter, year after year, of trying to make a profit. And you don't have to worry about your company coming in one day and saying, guess what, guys? After 25 years here and 15 minutes, you're out the door. Please turn in your badge. <laughs> so there's a risk-taking you know, I- attitude that you can have there that you won't have in private industry. Yeah. I'm curious if this push on, on NASA's uh, look at you know supersonic airplanes and things has any uh, anything to do with the uh, uh, area on supersonic business jet that's been, you know, in the in the plans for quite a number of years here. And, of course, just uh, announced this um, uh, order from FlexJet for a number of airplanes, once they're built, of course. But, I mean, it just seems like all of a sudden in the last uh, six months, 12 months, there's been a lot of focus on, on supersonic again. Yeah, that, that, that is true. That does seem true, that there are a number of companies – not just Arion, but a number of other companies uh, making some progress in this area. Uh, I, you know, maybe it's the uh, you know the lure of uh, you know the uh, the value that it, this could provide and the profits that might result from it. Well, there's a lot of money floating around. The economy is good. Uh, a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of folks looking for ways to invest money. They might might not always pay off, but yeah, I can imagine there are uh, some uh, some well-heeled uh, companies and individuals looking for new horizons, and this certainly fits the bill. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, push on. We have an item from the Hindustan Times. This is world's longest all-woman-operated flight is ready for takeoff. Now, this is something in celebration of International Women's Day, and Air India set the record for the longest all-woman-operated and supported flight. This was AI-173. They flew nonstop on March 6th from New Delhi to San Francisco, and the cabin crew, the cockpit crew, the check-in staff, the customer care staff, they were, they were all women. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's an interesting milestone. Yeah, and I think part of what we're trying to do here at the Airplane Geeks is promote women in aviation and all the different aspects of it. And this certainly illustrates there's an awful lot of jobs in aviation. And I think that it's great that Air India took this opportunity to focus on having an all-woman day, and or at least all-woman flight there. And, um, you know, got it done. And I'm no uh, expert on Indian culture or Indian society. But uh, what little I know is this. The progress of all factors in society, all groups in society, hasn't had the same 
dynamic that you've seen in the United States. There's still mm. issues there that have to be resolved, as there are, there are here in the United States. But what little I do know is that the role of women is at a place that maybe the U.S. was some years ago. And although it may be seen as a stunt by folks with the U.S. perspective, one has to realize that there may be much more of a need for this sort of example in Indian society, an example that's supported yeah. by directly and indirectly by the government than there is here in the States. Well, yeah. I, don't think it, I don't think it's a stunt at all. I, I still remember very vividly the first time I was on a, uh, an all-woman uh, crewed aircraft here. I was leaving uh, Newark, uh, New Jersey, and it was a regional airliner. And, and it was kind of cool just peeking through the cockpit door and going, hey, there are two women up there. And the guy sitting next to me, uh, and you kind of look at, you, you kind of go, how could people be this stupid? He, he turns to me and goes, boy. I don't think she knows what she's doing. Look, she's looking at the manual up there. <laughs> I, I said, no, that's because she's a really good pilot. She's looking at the manual to verify, you know, something that uh, she probably already knows. But anyway, I, I was just kind of surprised that, uh, you know, people could, could come up with, you know, that kind of reaction. So, yeah. yep, I, I mean, I think this is really super accomplishment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of uh, long-distance flying, uh, we see an article in the street titled Boeing 777 flies seven of the world's 10 longest airline routes. So not to take anything away from Air India, but uh, do you know what the longest flight in the world is? Well, it's the 8,819 miles between Dubai and Auckland, New Zealand, and Emirates started flying that on March 2nd. Now, they inaugurated the flight with an A380, but they switched to the 777-200LR uh, the next day. Uh, but uh, this article says that of the 10 longest flights in the world, the Boeing 777 flies seven of them, and the uh, Airbus A380 flies the other, the other three. But there's some, uh, there's some pretty long routes in this list. Yeah, it looked nice to see that the uh, 787 will uh, be making the list here uh, shortly uh, with the new flight Sing- uh, San Francisco to Singapore. So they will be uh, on the list soon. I'm sure we'll see more of those in the future. Yeah, Boy, that's they, a long flight, isn't it? Really? Wow, that uh, that that makes it the uh, the third longest flight when it when it comes in. Uh, also, the longest scheduled flight by any U.S. carrier. Uh, yeah, those are long flights. I mean, <laughs> when I when I used to, uh, to travel to Singapore on business from the East Coast, I mean, it was uh, you know you you had to make a couple of hops. Uh, in the uh, in the U.S. and then uh, fly to Narita and then down from Narita to Singapore and it just took uh, forever. So uh, direct from San Francisco to Singapore on a seven eight seven dash nine, I think I uh, would really have preferred that to <laughs> sitting in seven four seven four hundreds for those, uh, those hours. Boring, <laughs> boring. Why do you because, say that, David? Because. Let's see, when um, a pair of B-2s took off from Whitman Air Force Base in the middle of the country and flew 11,500 miles round trip to bomb Libya. Now, that's a long-distance flight. That is a long-distance flight. (laughs) Especially since they didn't refuel. Oh, wait. (laughs) (laughs) They did. How many times did did they refuel, David? Twice. Twice. Okay. Yeah, the one drawback. You know, they had no booze on that flight either, so who would want to take it? <laughs> that, that was one drawback, but then there was no potty on that airplane either. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, there actually is, and a kitchen, Rob. Oh, get out. 
They have a you mean kitchen? a potty they can get up and, and yes. get out of their seat and yes. get out. I didn't know that. Okay. Oh boy. Well, That's it. Right. That's it. I'm signing up for the Air Force right now. All right. Hey, I don't know. I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, did you notice one thing about the this list of 10 longest routes? Seven of the 10 longest routes uh, terminate in the Middle East. Mm. So either yeah, you, yeah, they're becoming the hub of the world. Absolutely. Um, I mean, that's what this list tells you. It's that why or, they call it the Middle East. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, 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 if we talk long before aviation, it was still the Middle East and the hub of the world. Now, we've also got three uh, A380s on this list of top 10 flights. I was talking with uh, an employee of an airline uh, this past weekend that had A380s, and this person said to me that when they first brought them on the line, they cost, they used to call them A180s because it seemed like they, they were turning back for most of the time with mechanical problems. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, the A380, the the Boeing 777. I remember when the Boeing 777 was uh, was being developed. Of course, I didn't know that uh, Todd, you were contributing to that. Ever to that. so slightly. Ever so slightly. But I I think one of the things I remember from that is uh, wasn't it one of the first airplanes that was more computer designed than predecessors had been? Well, it was a progression. Uh, obviously the uh, uh, 767 and 757 were the first real upgrade when it came to computerized uh, um, avionics and such. But of course, as with the rest of the electronics world, we're talking, what, 15, 10, 15 years later, it was much more sophisticated than the 5.7 and 6.7 era. And there was a level of automation that uh, reduced pilot workload, allowed the aircraft to do other things. One of the things that was incorporated into it was uh, one of my favorite things, thrust asymmetry compensation. So if you uh, lost your flight control systems, you can control the aircraft with differential engine thrusts, not by manipulating huh. the throttles, but it's incorporated into the aircraft. So by manipulating the usual rudder and, and control column, the engines would throttle up and back to turn the aircraft. Ah, interesting. A lesson hey, learned from, uh, from uh, Sioux City. Huh. Yes, yes, of course, yes. Yeah, there was a fantastic show that I believe it was um, – PBS put out called 21st Century Jet. It was a five-part series talking about the development of the 777 and you know, up into including First Flight. Mm. A great series to, to watch. All right. Speaking of, uh, of routes, maybe these aren't so long, but uh, as we discussed in a previous episode or two, the U.S. and Cuba have agreed to permit 110 daily flights between the two countries. 20 daily flights to Havana, and 10 daily flights to nine of the other international airports in, in Cuba. Now, the deadline for airlines to submit applications to the Department of Transportation for proposed flight routes has uh, expired, and eight different airlines uh, have put in their applications. Alaska Airlines, American Airlines, Delta Airlines, Frontier, JetBlue, Silver Airways, uh, which is a uh, Florida-based uh, operator. They fly, I think, Saab uh, 340Bs. Uh, also, Southwest Airlines and United Airlines. I think that when you add up all of the <laughs> applied-for uh, flights, you, get, you exceed the 110. So I think the DOT is going to have to find some way to, to decide who gets what flights. And I don't know how that's going to work. But uh, certainly a lot of interest in flying to Cuba. 
Yeah, it's an awful lot of bodies being moved back and forth. Boy, and certainly a lack of hotel rooms for all those bodies. I, I think uh, that's going to be the, the next big catch-up factor is getting more ho- hotels built uh, quickly. Really? I, I wonder, I, I kind of wonder if the real important aspect of this isn't that the price or the value of Cuban cigars is really going to go down. Oh, because you could bring yeah, Because everybody will be able to get them now, right? Yeah, well, but I think there's a lot of other good reasons to, uh, to visit uh, Cuba. Oh, absolutely. Um, but this issue of capacity to absorb the number of uh, tourists is has come up again in the past. People have even suggested things such as, you know, does the does the uh, the cell phone capacity in Cuba is it sufficient to handle all of these, mm. uh, you know, tourists with their iPhones and so forth? But uh, uh, I guess the uh, the DOT is going to take a look at this and make the decision on uh, on the flights sometime this summer. Um, so I guess it means maybe late summer fall or something flights might begin mm. yeah max well, in addition to that there's also the issue over um the the cruise ships stressing the infrastructure as well certainly it's not going to stress the beds but things like you talk yeah. about with the the cell phone service and restaurants and everything else um there's just an awful lot of americans that are going to be showing up in in cuba here soon Right. There's one thing I really, really, really fear when it comes to this uh, new access to Cuba with aviation. The biggest danger, I think, both to the U.S. and to Cuba, is some entrepreneur will make this a spring break destination. Oh. Oh. Yeah, if I was Cuba, I would. I think I would resist that because, yeah, I mean, there's this whole cultural angle of, uh, you know, Cuba has existed, as we know, you know, in this sort of kind of isolation uh, for a, a long period of time, and the what's developed there is unique to Cuba, and uh, I can just envision all, all these tourists coming in and kind of destroying that, or, or yep. at least negatively impacting the you know the real core of the culture there, and buying all the cars from the fifties. I, I was thinking that as well too. Yeah, yep, they're going to disappear pretty fast. Yeah, no doubt. All right. Well, again, we are speaking with uh, Dr. Todd Curtis, founder of airsafe.com. Uh, I was uh, on the uh, listener team we have on Slack, uh, I think uh, yesterday and early the, earlier today, and uh, explaining that, uh, Todd, that you were going to be on the show. And the way I described it uh, to, uh, to those in that forum was Todd is the voice of reason in the sea of shoot from the hip aviation accident speculators. And uh, one of the things that uh, I've always thought following you for all these years and uh, subscribing to the podcast and all, your podcast, uh, is that uh, one thing you tend not to do is speculate when there's, when there's accidents. And uh, I know there's a lot of pressure uh, for the press or, uh, to uh, you know, make statements and to try to explain what's happened uh, but you take a very kind of measured approach to that, don't you? I, I do out of uh, – because it's the nature of how I was always uh, uh, trained and how I did my work back in the day, especially when I was at Boeing. And when I first started reaching out to the media, this was in the mid-1990s, the thing that drove me was I was just frustrated by seeing these folks, some of whom were supposedly uh, well-trained and well-experienced aviation experts, who were saying things that were just not justified by the data. So I've always uh, had a strength with analyzing the data back uh, even before I was with Boeing. So I figured there was a wealth of information out there, a wealth of data to work with. 
And why not work with that as a foundation rather than speculating? Because there are people who do that much better than I ever did. And they dress better, too. <laughs> and they get on TV more. But uh, again, for example, we're coming up uh, as we do this recording. It's uh, the day before the second anniversary of MH370. And there is a, a scant amount of data then and now. But even in the earliest days of that event, to give you an example, I looked at the situation. I thought, all right, with the little data we have, what theories or what general theories make sense? And I came up with four. They haven't really changed since then. And in spite of all the wild theories that have been put out there, um, all the wild theories, most of them anyway, would come under one of these big four umbrellas, a traditional hijacking, a hijacking by an insider, be it a, an airline employee, pilot, etc., some massive cascading simultaneous system failure where the crew had to exercise both initiative and creativity just to keep the airplane in the air. And the process of doing so, they weren't communicating with the outside world. And the fourth being a situation where the crew was either unwilling or unable to make any changes to the airplane's uh, altitude, airspeed, or direction until the airplane ran out of fuel. Now, there could be a combination of things going on, but until we get some actual data from the airplane, uh, those four theories of mine, which are supported by what little data there was, hasn't really changed. So that's an example of the attitude I take. Uh, those four, some of them might sound outrageous, but they were justified by what was out there. So my argument to people is, if you're going to be in front of the media or in front of professional groups or even in front of your, your friends and family, stick with the data. Yes, yes. Now, I, I understand that the, the search that's going on, uh, that's being led by Australia, I guess, is scheduled to conclude this summer if if they don't find anything. And it, would that be a, a terrible shame? I mean, if, if that were to happen... Uh, would the situation then be that we will probably never know what happened to MH370? Well, it would be a terrible thing, and there would be pressure on the part of several parties, Chinese government, uh, the Malaysian government, the U.S. government even, to come to some sort of conclusion with this. What we really will boil down to, is there going to be enough in the way of resources put to this uh, issue, and will they be able to keep this going? And if uh, the collected entities who are involved in this say no, then it will stop. And if that happens, it may be decades before someone accidentally stumbles across the aircraft. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, Rob, you wrote a, uh, a really good piece in Jetwine about, uh, about MH370. Two years later, has the industry changed? And, and yeah, you kind of conclude uh, what that uh, in in many ways uh, a lot of things really haven't changed. Well, I I was speaking specifically to the the tracking and surveillance issue, and the, right after uh, uh, MH370 disappeared, uh, you know, the International Civil Aviation Organization put working groups together, and they made plans, and they looked at possibilities, and. And all of that was really great. I mean, and, and so I don't want to demean the fact that they, they, they were trying. But as of two years later, uh, there's really nothing in place that is any different than what we had when MH370 disappeared. So that if the same thing were to happen again, uh, we would have just as tough a time tracking an airplane out over a place like the Indian Ocean or the South China Sea or the Pacific or wherever because the technology, while it, it may be coming, like perhaps ADS-B, 
Uh, it's not there yet, and it's not been implemented. Uh, all we've had out of uh, uh, out of Montreal are recommendations, and of course, you know, Todd will certainly tell you that you know the the government works slowly, and and it does. But I I just thought it was interesting to to look back on that and and the sources I talked to and said, no, it's there's some great ideas out there, but right now nothing's really changed. And I don't think people know that. And I think that with this particular issue, that is, how do you track aircraft on any point of the globe? It boils down to a lot of the uh, reason why some things don't happen. For example, what we talked about earlier about supersonic transports. One of the big problems is going to be economic. Is there a way to make a buck and make this technology work? And one way that might happen a lot more quickly than recommendations out of Montreal might be if passengers demand that, hey, we must have our full-time internet, and phone service 24-7 anywhere in the world. And if that somehow or another becomes feasible and is actually happening, then it would be a a very, very simple um, step to make sure you're tracking the aircraft at all times because you would have to do that if you were going to have those kinds of services. So we may have it happen a lot quicker than we think. But unless there's a move on, on the part of multiple governments or unless there's a breakthrough when it comes to making money from the passengers, it's not going to happen. No, I, I agree with you, and, and there is the cost issue and the logistical issue of, let's say, the probably the emerging technology that's going to really make this happen is ADSB, but you need receivers on the ground. And uh, what do you do when you're out over the ocean or you're over the Amazon jungle or what have uh, There's no receivers down there, and that's why we're going to probably have to wait until, uh, uh, you know, Arion... The different Arion, I'm sorry, uh, launches their their satellites starting next year that uh, that have ADSB receivers in them that are going to eliminate those blind spots. Uh, but that whole system won't be up and running, I think, until late 2018. Uh, but so that's still a couple of years yet. And uh, and many people that I spoke to uh, uh, last week thought this had already been solved. And I said. No, actually, it hasn't. And they're really surprised at that. But Well, you also have our uh, entities in Silicon Valley, such as Google, and I believe Facebook, who are planning fairly innovative technologies, either high-flying solar-powered aircraft or balloons, in order to put Internet service in underserved areas around the globe. Now, obviously, there's not too many people in the middle of the ocean, but certainly if that technology could be... Uh, taken to maturity and taken to a level of profitability, then it may be, again, a very short step to say, hey, can't we take this proven technology and apply it strategically at various places around the globe so that you would have some semblance of worldwide coverage for things like locating aircraft or communicating with passengers? Or for checking your Facebook status. Yeah, I was just (laughs) going to say, now that I read an article where Facebook was planning on launching a satellite and having it start off be specifically for Facebook-only traffic, but their plan was to, after they proved out the technology, to open it up to other data. We were talking about MH370 and uh, not having information, not having data, let's say, um, that helps us understand that. There's another accident recently. I'm thinking of the uh, A321 uh, that uh, was flying out of uh, Mogadishu, uh, Somalia, I think, uh, that, uh, you know, experienced that explosion um, 
as a result of uh, someone bringing a bomb on board, I guess. Uh, uh, Todd, you've taken a look at this. I know you track this stuff pretty uh, pretty well. Uh, it, it seems like uh, because of the situation there in Somalia, we may not learn much about the you know, the root cause of this uh, this accident. Well, it at was, least not quickly. It was a very complicated situation, not from the explosion and technical part of it, but from the organizational part of it. You have the Somali government, which only I believe less than a year before had actually regained control of some of its national airspace, and obviously they would be in charge of the investigation. But infrastructure-wise, they don't have anything like an AAIB or an NTSB that that level of, count, of capability. Of course, they can bring in folks from the outside. But more to the point, you have an airline that was flying out of Somalia, but I believe it was owned by a Somalian but headquartered in Dubai or in another country, and it was a, its, its hub was over in Djibouti. And, uh, again, when you have this multiple-layered responsibility of who's flying this plane and, and who, oh, I, I neglected to add this. A few days later, it turned out that there was a Turkish airline flight that was supposed to take this route. For whatever reason, that airline had canceled, and this plane was supposedly uh, taking the place of the Turkish airliner. So I said to myself, now wait a minute, in addition to all the other entities I just mentioned, would Turkish airlines be, should they be involved in this? That is, who is going to be responsible for answering questions such as, did Turkish airlines lines know anything? And if so, when did they know it? Did the Somali government have an actual level of competence or capability, not competence, but capability to do the oversight of such a, of situations like this? And I'm not even going to talk about airline airport security, where there had been some videos released some days after the event that seemingly showed uh, two people who were on the ground handing a package to the a laptop to the person who was allegedly the bomber. And this is all very fine and good that the bits and pieces of information have been released. And the average person might think, well, the various people who are responsible are actually on the case and looking at this. But I don't see the kind of coordinated action that you would see happening if there was a real, honest, and serious effort to look at this not as an individual bomb on one airplane, but as a possible system-wide problem in that region of the world when it comes to the safety of, of airlines. So again, uh, the, the actual explosion itself, very simple. The details and the organizations and the relationships around the explosion, very hard for me to figure out. Hmm. And there's, tell me if this is true, there's no real uh, mechanism that would uh, force this to a, you know, a proper conclusion. Well, they're, the only mechanisms that exist, and of course it's a voluntary uh, agreement amongst uh, international entities, is going to be Annex 13 uh, under, I believe it's the Chicago Convention, which talks about how do you conduct an investigation if it's an accident. And uh, There are certain roles that people play. There are parties who are directly involved in the investigation. The investigation should be open and shared with the world and such. But if it's not an accident, if it's a deliberate act, an act of terror, a military event, there are no established international norms for how it should be conducted or whether any information would be released about it. And let's go back in time and I'll do two very, very different comparisons. Uh, way back in, I believe it was 1988, please correct me if I'm wrong, was Lockerbie, where you had the bomb blowing up in the Pan Am 747 over Scotland. The AIB had a fantastic uh, analysis of what happened, very detailed 
descriptions of what happened, the sequence of events, how the bomb affected the aircraft structure. They publish this for the entire world. If you go to the United States, if you have an event where it's a deliberate action, be it 9-11 or the Pacific Southwest um, uh, aircraft back in, I believe it was 19, uh, 1970s, early 1980s, where an ex-employee came in with a 44 Magnum and shot both pilots, you didn't see anything like a formal, open analysis that was released to the public for them to, to mull over. Uh, if it's a deliberate action, if it's an act of terror, there's not going to be an NTSB-like report released to the public. Now, they're both deliberate actions, both what happened in Lockerbie and what happened in the U.S., but Britain has had a much different response than U.S. authorities. So again, your earlier point, no, there is no international agreement on how to deal with something that is not an accident, but which may lead to the loss of lives and the loss of aircraft. One of the threats, actually two of the threats that uh, we see in the in the press all the time these days are uh, threats from uh, people shining lasers uh, at airplanes in flight and people flying drones, small drones, up near airplanes. Uh, Todd, maybe you can talk about those uh, both from the standpoint of really how, how dangerous are these things and uh, is there a, a path to a solution? Uh, first, a bit of full disclosure. No, I didn't give you a heads up about this beforehand, or I didn't pay anyone off. But it so happens that a few months ago, I did a fairly extensive analysis of the drone data provided by the, by the FAA. And I put it out on the site at lasers.airsafe.com, where I basically took the spreadsheets that they had out there and tried to make sense out of it. And looking at the, the 2010 to 2014 timeframe in the United States, the number of reports that came in every day was averaging roughly 10 per day during that five-year span. And preliminary reports from 2015 uh, show that it's roughly twice that, 20 a day. And what's worse, I know of at least two occasions where there were laser strikes that were reported but didn't end up in the FAA database. Uh, one of them was an event where a gentleman went to prison. He apparently shined a light at like a police helicopter and a, and a Southwest Airlines 737. I thought, oh, mm. The FBI has this case. They put the guy in jail. Both of those reports should be in the database. I should see something about the helicopter and something about the airliner. I saw the report, I believe, about the helicopter, but not the airliner. And I mm. thought, well, gee, there's a disconnect there. As a very basic requirement, if someone goes to prison and if the federal government put them in prison, they should make sure it ends up in the FAA database. Didn't happen. Another event I actually saw a laser being shot at an aircraft when I was flying into Boston about a year and about two years ago. And I went to the FAA website, went through the process, submitted the report. Of course, I wasn't a flight crew member. I was a passenger. But they said, hey, if you see it, report it. I did my civic duty. And when I did my research a few months ago, I couldn't find any evidence of my report being there. So when I say there were, there were roughly 10 per day during that five-year period, in my opinion, it's probably a lot higher than 10. It's just that only some of them end up in the database where they should be. On the, on the drone issue, uh, that's something where it has gone exponential beyond what anyone could have guessed two or three years ago. And that's due in part to the concurrent um, improvements that have happened in, in communications and in computer power. You now have, in something weighing a few grams, uh, enough power in the uh, the chips that are out there to communicate with the with the drone to put in you know a flight plan etc you don't have to have 
basic piloting skills to launch a drone that can go on a pre-planned course if you wanted to. And also, unlike regular airplanes, it's relatively easy to cobble one together without going through a manufacturer. So the FAA's requirement that drones over, I believe, a half pound have to have a registration number. By the way, I did do that myself. <laughs> I signed up for this when it was free. I don't have a drone, but I figure, let me get in while the getting's good. For the first month, the FAA said, we'll waive the $5 charge. Right. So I actually have a, a number I'll slap on any drone I get in the future. But backing up a little bit, I can go out right now and find bits and pieces of drones, put it together without going through a manufacturer, and fly it to my heart's content. So if the intent was to make sure every drone that's manufactured has a responsible party associated with it, the FAA succeeded. If the goal was to have every drone uh, tracked to an owner, the FAA has not succeeded. And the technology in the next few years will probably be much more capable than the technology of today. So between 3D printing, more sophisticated electronics, the drone problem will probably get either a whole lot worse or maybe the fad will go the other way. It'll get a whole lot better if people stop uh, getting excited about flying drones. And let's let's just scale it briefly. I had a conversation with someone at the FAA today who said this past weekend alone, uh, pilots reported eighteen drone you know sightings where they you know felt there was a possible conflict. So you look at that and go, wow, that's a huge, huge number. Yeah, it's a tough problem, and in part, you, I mean, you can say that in in many cases this may be um, action, actions from people who just have no concept of. Uh, what they're doing or the danger that uh, that they may be, uh, um, you know, bringing to uh, to aviation, uh, it's just lack of awareness. But it, it's it's tough when you have hundreds of thousands of these things being sold and uh, you know and uh, no training, no awareness, and it could just lead to a uh, you know a serious situation at some point in time. And almost just statistically, there's uh, it seems likely that something bad is going to happen at some point. Yeah, it has to. I mean, there was somebody uh, posted a video in Europe uh, a day or two ago. He flew his uh, DJI quadcopter to eleven thousand feet. I mean, if you if you have a hundred thousand drone owners, you know there's there's at least a few a few crazy people in that bunch. And and drones wow. and lasers share another common um, reality in that both are technologies that were developed uh, for other reasons, and there happen to be and they happen to be to a certain level, um, regulated. For example, if you have a consumer product of any sort, you have to follow consumer regulations. Just like if you buy a radio, it has to follow FCC requirements for you know how the radio performs. But there isn't necessarily a coordination between those entities which deal with consumer products and those entities that deal with aviation. Uh, the FAA might have said if they were at the table years ago, it's like, you know what? Lasers are great things for industrial uses and such. But maybe there should be some thought put into uh, putting real restrictions on handheld lasers that you can just whip out of your pocket and use as a laser pointer in, in a PowerPoint presentation in that it may be great for PowerPoint presentation, but even something that's a giveaway at conferences, you know, I've had that kind of swag a few times, can cause problems with aircraft. Uh, there hasn't been a conversation before like that. And to a certain extent, the cat's out of the bag because you have laser manufacturers who are not in the U.S., where a lot of, well, just like a lot of other consumer products, they're not manufactured here, but they're shipped here. Uh, even if tomorrow the FAA 
had a, an ability to stop all imports, uh, all sales of, of, of laser pointers. It does nothing about the pointers that are here. It will do very little about other countries where these pointers could show up. You can solve the problem here, but it's inherently an international problem mm. and has to have an international solution, both drones and lasers. For lasers, there's no technology solution to this is there is some kind of coating on you know airplane windscreens that would reflect lasers or i mean there's no there, there's no option like that 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 you're aware of is there i've heard of options like that i have not looked at specifically the technology to see if the kind of coatings you can put on the on a windscreen can keep it from dazzling the pilots or if there's some uh anti-laser shades that might be a derivative of what the military uses that you could use. But mm-hmm. we're talking about, again, getting back to the kind of laser issues you can have. Most of the laser problems are not from something that will, that will actually do damage to the airplane. You know, James Bond aside, the likelihood of any laser shooting an air, a hole in an airplane at, at a great distance is virtually nil. Yeah. And whether or not a laser will actually cause a problem for the, for the pilot will depend on how it hits the aircraft. Does it cause a bright flash on the whole windscreen and you're like sort of like flash blinded does it happen right before landing or right after takeoff where it might be a critical uh, phase of flight is it happening with airline pilots only where the likelihood of getting both pilots taken out is probably low whereas if it happens on a general aviation aircraft with a single pilot operation the likelihood of it leading to really serious problems is much much higher again there, there, there are a variety of issues here that have to be addressed and I will well, say it, this, from, from the data, the problem is all over the place. Small airports, large airports, police helicopters, you name it. I was going to say, too, that the, the uh, possibility of uh, the, you know, people thinking this through, with, uh, on the drone side at least, uh, it, it makes sense logically, but that's not how the FAA works. Uh, you know, they're... They're there to check boxes and and uh, and and look like they're accomplishing their their mission. I mean, when we look back at Christmas uh, of last year, when everyone thought that uh, I don't know a million or million and a half drones were going to appear on the horizon, uh, they issued instructions to uh, to airports that said uh, if uh, I'm sorry, and to uh, drone uh, purchasers that if you were going to fly within five miles of an airport. You needed to notify the uh, airport and air traffic control, and so just before Christmas, uh, because we work with a couple of airports, um, I asked these managers. I said, "Well, what what's the plan when people start calling about drones?" And they said, "Well, we don't know," and and I talked to air traffic in some of them around Chicagoland too. What what what's the plan when people call and? Uh, and say they want to fly a drone within five miles of, of your airport. Um, I don't know. I mean, and and that that was not a, a fluke. I mean, that that concept was pervasive over a lot of airports I spoke to, because the FAA just said you must contact the airport and you must contact air traffic, but they didn't tell either of those people what to do, and uh, no one has any clue how that was going to prevent anything. So, again, it's another one of those situations where nobody really thought that through. Things are moving just so fast. <laughs> well, sure. Oh, and yeah. it's, it's like that with lasers, excuse, I'm, I'm but... sure. You know, they're, they're, sen- they're selling so many of them 
that the manufacturers are just saying, hey, get out of the way so we can sell this stuff because people want them. And, uh, and the regulation takes, uh, or the safety aspect of it is, is secondary. Well, we've talked about automating cockpits and not having any pilots. I mean, that would solve certainly the laser problem. It's not going to solve the, <laughs> it's not going to solve the drone problem. No, no. All right. Well, uh, Todd, we wanted to um, give you an opportunity to talk about this aviation maintenance competition that's coming up. What can you tell us about that? Well, absolutely. This is a competition that involves uh, maintenance professionals who are either in the field working for airlines, uh, equipment manufacturers, uh, students in aviation schools to come together to have a straight-up competition where they're trying to prove their skills against their uh, fellow maintainers. And it's uh, the organization is uh, uh, the Aerospace Maintenance Co- Competition Organization that was run, created by former NTSB board member John Golia, who, as many of you know, has been a very long time, like 50-year uh, history in aviation as a, as a maintenance person. And his idea was to raise the profile of the maintenance profession, and give a platform where especially the younger folks coming into the, into the industry can see that, yes, this is a job of the future. This is a, an opportunity to see what their future might be like five, ten years down the line working with an airline or whomever, and also to get a chance to meet other people in, in their profession. And the next one is going to happen at the MRO Americas in, uh, in Dallas in early April. And right now, last I checked with uh, John, there's about uh, 50-plus teams coming to compete. This is the third time we've done it. Uh, we did it before last year in uh, Miami, the year before that in, uh, in Vegas. And it, uh, it's a great competition. Full disclosure, I don't have a maintenance background whatsoever, and I'm learning stuff all the time about the industry and the challenges of the industry. And as many of you know, one of the challenges is how does one become a fully qualified FA certified uh, maintenance professional. It's not an easy road, and uh, it's not want something for everyone. It takes dedication and hard work. But unlike a lot of professions out there, you can go get your formal training and be relatively sure that you'll have an opportunity to be employed in several different places around the country. You know, we've talked about uh, some of the forecasts for the number of pilots that will be required in the next 20 years, and that tends to get most of the attention. But along with those forecasts for pilots is the the need for uh, aviation maintenance technicians as well. I mean, that, there's a huge demand for that, isn't there? Well, absolutely. In fact, the demand is probably going to be uh, more of an issue for the aviation industry because if you have the kind of background that can allow you to become a certified FAA maintenance person. You also have the skills that, can, that are in high demand in other industries. So one of the issues that, that John especially pointed out to me was that there's competition for these folks' services outside of aviation. And sometimes where the pay scale is, is better than what they can get starting off. So it's even more imperative that there be more activities like this that raise the profile of this, raises the interest level, and gets people gets people interested in entering the the schools at their local uh, technical college or junior college or in their uh, industry program if they're with a company that will provide that training for them. Now you pass along to us uh, a link to an article in the ADA Journal. It's called "The Super Bowl of Aviation Mechanics Skills Creates an Audience of Future Safety Professionals." Uh, what's the the safety professionals angle here? Well, uh, of course, uh, my background as well as John's are 
uh, in safety as well as in the other parts of the aviation business that we were in. One of the things we emphasize is that the need for mechanics of all kinds and people in, in that profession isn't just to fix airplanes, but to maintain the safety of the system. And that their contribution, although they might think that they're a low level in the industry, is vitally important because, as you know, as you all know, being aviation professionals, it takes a network of people, a team of people, hundreds of thousands around the world, in fact, most of whom won't know each other personally, but they must understand the importance of what they're doing and why they're doing it. So, again, a maintenance professional, by, in my opinion, by default, is intimately involved with the safety system as well. Yeah, agreed, absolutely. All right. Well, uh, we're kind of running out of time here, but uh, let's circle back maybe to where we started talking about the the media and reporting in the media of aviation incidents and accidents and so forth. And uh, we uh, we had a great question from Micah that he posted in the uh, in the listener team there on Slack. And he asked if uh, you could talk a little bit about the, the news media reporting of aviation-related stories in general and uh, how that might be able to be improved. So, Todd, what are your thoughts on that? Well, as you can probably imagine, I have a, a couple of thoughts on that. I, I started getting involved directly with the media as a part of my process for starting airsafe.com back in 95 when I first started with the idea in 96 when it launched. And my idea then was to uh, use the skills I had, which were very limited, but one skill I did have is I looked at this as a marketing challenge in a sense. How does one market aviation safety in the sense of making an audience aware of it, uh, aware of uh, what it can do for them to understand it, and to lead them into places where they can essentially make better decisions and take actions based on what they know about safety. So in addition to putting together the site, I started saying to myself, well, gee, how can I reach out to the media so I can get in newspapers, get on radio shows, etc.? I looked at this like a baseball analogy. If I wanted to be in the big leagues, I have to start taking lessons of how to swing the bat and catch the ball and then work on getting into a single-A team somewhere. So I said to myself, doesn't matter how small the entity, if it's a news organization, if it's a someone publishing a newspaper, radio station, etc., I'll reach out to them and say, look, here's who I am, here's what I'm doing, here's a resource that answers your questions. If you need me, call me. And because my interaction with the media, however small the entity was, I got better at providing information that was actually useful to the audience. And uh, one of the principles I had is I never underestimated my audience. I always assume that whoever I'm talking to is very intelligent about the decisions they make for themselves. So every passenger, every person working on the ramp, anyone involved in aviation, if they're making a decision about it or if they have a concern about safety, whatever their concern is, whatever their problem is, they know their situation best. So it didn't help me, and it wouldn't help them to talk down to them or say, well, I've got this degree. No. What are the issues that are problems? How can I address those problems and allow them to solve them for themselves? And one of the big problems I saw was bad information. So in addition to putting together the website, I was driven to how can I better prepare myself so that they call me versus that clown over there I don't like when they need a blurb, when they need a comment, when they need someone to go on camera. So as far as how has the media changed, 
the biggest change over the last 20 years is back then, media was still dominated by the usual suspects. The television stations, newspaper publishers, magazines, radio, etc. If you wanted to get to an audience, you had to work through an existing network of information providers. Slowly, that's changed where you still have the usual suspects. They might have changed their names and you know, some companies might have gone, gotten bigger, some smaller. But you have a much greater reach now. Any individual can take absolutely free resources and have the ability to communicate with the entire world. Your average uh, smartphone, it's got Skype, so you can do radio and TV interviews. Better yet, you can talk directly with someone who might be a kindred spirit on the other side of the world, and it doesn't cost a penny. If you think, well, gee, I got an idea. I want to publish it out there. Okay, maybe only two or three people will read it, but you have not only websites and blogs, you've got Twitter, you've got Facebook, you've got LinkedIn, you've got uh, a Periscope, which I actually tried for the first time the other day. I don't know mm-hmm. if anyone has, has done Periscope. Basically, you can do live TV broadcasts from your phone. And um, 90% of the people I've seen don't have anything worth saying. You, should, you <laughs> yeah. should make a point of being one of the 10%. Use this technology to the greatest extent possible. So I'm all over the map here, but my basic point is, A, the media is no longer them. It's everybody. B, whatever tools you have, however, uh, even if you think you have only a little bit of skill and a little bit of talent, use it. Practice it. You'll get better. Mm. One of the aspects of all this, of course, is the the rush to be first, right, because of all the, the instant communications. And sometimes it seems that all the facts aren't assembled properly in that rush to be first or rush to be fast. Uh, I think you probably agree. Oh, I, I, I totally agree on that. But And one of the things I, I started doing even years ago is I, I said to myself, I can't be CNN. I can't be out there. Yes, I'm the first one to say this. Because no, I'm not there. I don't have the best information. So uh, when I, for example, when I become aware of something happening, I don't rush to get something out there. What I do rush to do is get some sort of context for what happened out there. Uh, case in point, a couple of years ago, almost a couple of years ago, it was July 17, 2014, which happened to be the 17th anniversary, 18th anniversary of Flight 800. And I was working that morning to put together a little something for the website to sort of like talk about, yes, this is the 18th anniversary of Flight 800. And suddenly I get a, a, an email or, or tweet saying, hey, well, no, a phone call from a media person saying, hey, Todd, a uh, plane that's 777 from Malaysia Airlines just crashed somewhere in Ukraine. I'm thinking, okay, somebody's trying to troll the media. Someone's thinking the media is paying attention to airplane issues because it's the 18th anniversary. So we'll just put a joke story out there and see how far it will run. So hmm. I actually sat back and, and said, I'm going to wait a half hour. I'm not going to jump on this yet because I think this is completely bogus. Turns out it wasn't. Hmm. But waiting to get some background information, waiting to get confirmation, waiting to get additional information is something I do for all events in that there's plenty of media out there. There are plenty of people tweeting about it, writing blogs about it, doing videos, major networks, etc. Take the time to use your specific skills and expertise, whatever that may be, to give some unique insight or angle to it before you blurt out to the world. 
Yeah, good advice. Very good advice, Todd. Uh, I think you, you know, hit it on the head. Well, why don't we uh, close up this segment and give you an opportunity to uh, just briefly tell our listeners uh, what kinds of resources they can find on airsafe.com. I know many of them are familiar uh, with the work that you do, but for those others, what do they find there? Well, there's a variety of resources, uh, some of which have to do with aviation. I, For example, I, I keep a list of what I think are high-profile aviation events that happen every year, uh, airline crashes for sure, but other events which may be of great interest to the aviation community and which I think have an impact on the public's perception of aviation safety. In addition, I have a lot of resources for average air travelers. For example, there's a complaint section where I give a how-to tutorial on how to uh, complain to an airline. That is, what are the basic things you should do in order to make it more likely that whatever complaint you have actually gets addressed? And to avoid those complaints, I also have all sorts of issues about common issues that usually lead to complaints. Baggage. Believe it or not, the baggage pages are by far the most popular pages on the site. Hmm. What are the basic baggage rules? What are the rules for carry-ons? How should you carry large amounts of cash, which surprisingly is a very, very popular page. And what you shouldn't do when it comes to valuable documentation, cash, jewelry, etc., I even put in a a section after the changes in Colorado and Washington State on how to fly with marijuana. Here's a a heads up. Basically, it says, no, 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 you can't do it. But I wrote it in a way that filled an information gap. That's another thing I didn't cover earlier, filling information gaps. Obviously, the marijuana industry was touting, oh, come to Colorado and Washington. We have marijuana. The government was saying, it's illegal on a federal level. Don't do it. But there was nothing in there that says to the average passenger, if you're going to do this, how can you do so and actually not do something stupid and actually be within the law? Basic things like, well, gee, you can't use a credit card to buy this stuff because of the federal limitation. So if you're a traveler coming from overseas, here's a heads up about the American system when it comes to marijuana. Use cash. Go to the ATM first. Again, uh, I I talk about that. I talk about baggage issues. I talk about uh, traveling with children. You give advice on doing that. And again, rather than going through the dozen or so uh, things that are there, including some heads up about uh, medical issues and flying, go to the website, search on the search engine on the website, and you'll very likely find many of your common questions addressed within that site. And in addition, we have a, a YouTube channel, a podcast, as well as a Twitter account. Twitter name is AirSafe. So if you want to keep track of what we're doing at AirSafe, you can do it that way. All right. Excellent. Excellent work, Todd. Uh, as I've mentioned, uh, you've been doing this for quite a while. 20 years uh, as of July. Yeah, that's amazing. Believe it or not. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't been following you that long, but almost. What was the, the year that um, you first started AirSafe? 96? Uh, 96. I, um, July 3rd, which was, I did it deliberately. It was the eighth anniversary of the shoot down of the Iran Air A300. Ah, and by coincidence, two weeks of the day after I launched it, Flight 800 happened. Wow, wow! All right, Dr. Todd Curtis, AirSafe.com. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. Okay, that was good, Todd. Well, I, I, yeah, like I said, it was it's a longer form, so I didn't <clears throat> cut it down to eight second chunks. Yeah, yeah. I I imagine you might have enjoyed it a little bit uh, for that reason. Well, I was I was getting on my horse for a little bit there. 
That's okay. That's yeah, not a problem. Hey, Todd, I actually had a question for you. Um, you know, and you talked at the beginning about speculation. And I want to know, because I just read an article uh, today about um, Martin Dolan, who's the head of the Australian Authority for mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, MH370, and he says that they're going to find stuff by July. I just want to know, how can he know that they're going to find something by July? It seems like a pretty big speculation to me. Uh, well, let me just speculate on speculation. Um, <laughs> he's speaking to an audience, an audience that wants to have some semblance of hope that there'll be some progress. And what they may find, I'm not sure what he's referring to, but it may be, and I'm going on a limb here, that the absence of evidence in itself might be something worth reporting in that you have, among other things, a patch of ocean which has never been thoroughly explored before. And the Australians hats off to them, are doing a fantastic job of doing a very detailed underfloor, under seafloor survey of what's down there. Unlike the North Atlantic, which during the Cold War and before that, when there were transatlantic lines being laid, there have been for over 100 years a great interest in the seafloor between North America and, and Western Europe. That part of the Indian Ocean, there was never that kind of research, there was never that kind of military activity, there was never that kind of reason to poke around down there. They've had a reason now, and they've done a remarkable job. So, again, they will find, if nothing else, a very, very detailed map of the seafloor and a very, very extensive look for the wreckage in that area. So by then, they will definitely have that information. Beyond that, I'm not sure what he was referring to. Interesting. Boy, I hope they find something. All right. Folks are always asking us how they can dip into the back catalog of airplane geeks episodes Uh, brian you want to tell people about some options for doing that yeah so there are two ways to get a hold of the back episodes including episode 10 that feature dr todd uh the first way would be to send me an email and that would be at brian at airplanegeeks.com the second even easier way is to um uh, go to a website one of our listeners, uh, William in the Netherlands, created this website and he's donated the bandwidth and programming and all. And by year, has uh, uh, compressed all the shows into a, a single download file. Yeah, that website is airplanegeeks.oosz.org. And uh, again, yes, as uh, Brian says, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. He sort of chunked it up. Uh, to some big uh, annual files, and so you can download it by by year. So uh, thanks to Willem for, for putting that together. Well, there's another way uh, that I actually found myself. My old standby of, gee, I'll just put it in Google. I did, like, Airplane Geeks Episode 10, and up came a page that had Episode 10. I clicked on it and played in Windows at airplanegeeks.com slash et cetera, et cetera, 2008 slash 08 yes. slash 11. So basically, <laughs> search on Google. That's, that's always a good way to do, uh, to do that. So do you think maybe 100 years from now, people will be going back and saying, wow, this is what it was like in the early days of podcasting. You know, like the old movies, we're trying to restore this <laughs> to the original form of this podcast so you could hear what it was like when it first aired 100 years ago. It's hard to say. Either yeah, that that's going to be it for will the- be determined that it was some form of obnoxious oral, oral torture for people. <laughs> That's right. It'll be banned. It'll no longer be legal to listen to. 
Hey, before the completest of, of, of the completest of the group will be able to go back and listen to all ten thousand episodes, though. How much fun would that be? <laughs> oh my god! I, I think the biggest observation from the future will look back and say, of all the internet technologies, audio podcasting was perhaps the only one that was not overrun with pornography. <laughs> yeah. But we're going to change that. Oh no! Not or, this episode. Or overrun I, with. We're trolls. just not sure how yet. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the listener mail we received. Uh, my favorite comes from Isaac. He uh, posted this actually on the uh, listener team, the uh, Airplane Geeks listener team. Uh, this is from Liam News. It's on engine architectures. And there was a conference recently, the Pacific Northwest Aerospace Alliance 2016 Subsupplier Conference in Seattle. And at this event, uh, Pratt & Whitney, Rolls-Royce, GE, they all talked about uh, their uh, latest engine projects, the technology being employed, the strategies that they're using. And I thought it was just a, a fascinating uh, article because, you know, we, we talk about or you read about uh, what's Pratt doing with the GTF, What's GE doing with uh, ceramic matrix composites and uh, higher core temperatures and pressures? And uh, this uh, puts all of that together in one article that marches through uh, the, uh, the, the three big uh, OEMs there and, and what they're doing. And I, I thought it's just fascinating to look at the different technological approaches, the different strategies uh, that are being employed. Um, also, um, how engineering uh, challenges kind of cascade. Uh, Todd, I'm sure you're really, really familiar with this, but I love the description of uh, how in the, in the GE engine, um, how if you want to uh, you know, raise pressures in one section, how that means you have to do something else with a different component and some other section then uh, uh, is impacted by that. And so you have to redesign or re-engineer uh, something else. I, I kind of characterize it, as I said, as sort of cascading engineering challenges. So I think um, it's just a fascinating article. We'll, we'll put a link to this one in the show notes. That's one of the uh, subtleties of engineering that uh, I appreciated, especially when I was at Boeing, and the fact that you have many integrated uh, codependent systems, whether it's an airplane level or an engine level, and you just can't casually say, well, gee, if we do this, it'll make things better. No, it'll make things different. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, we also heard from uh, Mark, uh, Mark Harvey, and he says that he was listening to our episode 389 with Sarah Rickman. This was the uh, uh, episode where we talked about the, the WASP. And he said, uh, listening to the exploits of the ferry pilots and WASP, it reminded me of the British equivalent in the war, the ATA, or Air Transport Auxiliary. And he found a documentary video on YouTube. It's called Spitfire Women. And uh, it, it tells the history and gives a lot of information about the ATA. He says there were far less total pilots in the ATA, uh, but in both organizations, meaning the ATA and the WASP, the volume of aircraft delivered to the front line is staggering and was vital to the war effort. He says, I just find it amazing that these pilots were flying aircraft with no experience on type, just based on the pilot's notes that they were given and flying so many different types, even in one day. So uh, thanks to Mark. I think we'll, we'll also put this YouTube video 
in the show notes. Have a look at that. That's at uh, airplanegeeks.com slash 392 for episode 392. And then we heard from uh, a, a different Mark. Uh, he said, I'm still in awe of your great podcast. Thank you, Mark. Massive thank you to all of you for the hard work and time it takes. He says, I thought you may like this. I never knew this helicopter existed. Such a wacky idea. I suppose that's what uh, we do here. Uh, would you want to fly in a helicopter with jets on the tips of the rotors? So this is uh, an item from the BBC. Why did the half-plane, half-helicopter not work? And this is about the ferry Rotodyne that was developed in the 50s and 60s. And this is kind of an odd uh, uh, craft. It's, it's fairly large. Uh, it, it takes off vertically using the helicopter rotors, but they're driven by jets, little jets on the tips. Uh, but then it, uh, it also has sort of wings, kind of stubby wings, uh, that has uh, turboprops on them for, for forward flight. Uh, interesting craft. I, David, are you, are you familiar with the, the fairy Rotodyne? Of course I am. <laughs> I know. I, I almost didn't have to ask, did I? No, I was sort of surprised that, we, that people are discovering one of Great Britain's um, possible successes, but um, inevitably failures. But you know, the only reason why I know about it was because there was a model made of it. Airfix made a model of it. Um, but it was... A, a, a compound helicopter. It was designed for. The hope was to be able to go from downtown London out to airports, and or from London to Paris. And it it was the sixties. They tried a lot of things. Everybody was trying new things, and helicopter technology was very immature. And well, I just looked at Wikipedia and saw a picture of this, and. I'm not sure if I can better imagine uh, Austin Powers or Hugh Hefner flying that back in the 60s. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it, a pretty... it, I was going to say, it has a very 60s kind of feel to it. Yeah, you it know, and Clamshell doors in the back, you know, for cargo. I mean, it, it's an interesting aircraft. Everybody should go look at it, and maybe someday I possibly will do a history segment on it after the long list that's ahead of it. So... It sounds like an opportunity for yet another NASA X plane. <laughs> they oh. could get, they could figure out how to get it right. You know, combine this with the supersonic aircraft they're working on. Well, we sort of have got it right. You wanted the speed of a helicopter. You wanted the vertical takeoff and landing of a helicopter and the speed of a turboprop. The Osprey V twenty two. That would be the Osprey. And compound helicopters are coming back. Um, the Sikorsky Raider is a compound helicopter with a pusher propeller. So the technology hasn't disappeared. It's just being executed slightly different. Okay, well, that's going to do it for this episode of the Airplane Geeks podcast. We want to thank you all for listening. We want to thank especially our guest, Dr. Todd Curtis, founder of airsafe.com. Todd, again, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was indeed a pleasure. And we'll uh, have to have you back uh, <laughs> more more frequently than once every uh, eight years. Uh, I agree with that. Okay. And, and he stayed, made it. To, he, he's one of those guests that made it all the way to the end. It's kind of frightening. You're a real trooper. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's tell everyone where they can find us online, or if you have any other uh, little information you want to pass along, this is your your opportunity. We'll start with you, Brian. How can folks reach you? 
The best place to get a hold of me is brian at airplanegeeks.com. And Max Trescott. Oh, I would say go out to Twitter. Um, and you'll see what I did this past weekend. I live tweeted again from uh, the San Francisco area all the way down south of San Luis Obispo. And uh, you'll get to see all kinds of beautiful pictures of the, the coast of California. So go to uh, twitter.com slash Max Trescott, T-R-E-S-C-O-T-T, and uh, follow me. Great. And David Vanderhoof, how do folks find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at DM Vanderhoof, staring at, um, in jealousy at all of Max Trescott's flight photographs. Or you can find me on the UAV Digest with Max Flight on Friday mornings. And Rob Mark? All things Jetwine. Uh, J-E-T-W-H-I-N-E. All right, I'm Max Flight. You can find me on Twitter at Max Flight. Also look for me on LinkedIn and, as David mentioned, at theuavdigest.com. I'm also on the PaxX podcast with passenger experience expert Mary Kirby. Find us at airplanegeeks.com. You can find all the links to us on social media there, Twitter, Facebook, uh, et cetera, et cetera. If you'd like to learn more about the listener team, just visit airplanegeeks.com slash team. We'd love to see you over there. Show notes for this episode are at airplanegeeks.com slash 392. So we ask all of you to please join us again next week as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the special edition of The Conversation at airsafe.com. If you'd like to find out more about the Airplane Geeks podcast, please visit them at airplanegeeks.com. Max Light, who produces Airplane Geeks, also produces the podcast, The UAV Digest, and you can find out more about that at theuavdigest.com. You can subscribe to either one of Max's podcasts using iTunes or your favorite podcast directory. As always, if you want to find out more about aviation safety and security, please visit airsafe.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.